everyone, and welcome to the Where There's a Will, There's a Way podcast. Have you ever wondered what having a disability looks like? Throughout my life, where there's a will, there's a way has been a motto that I've lived by. What better way to explore that motto than to interview individuals that have shaped my life as a young girl to who I am today? This podcast is intended for those that have a disability and those who don't have a disability that are curious as to what life with a disability entails. If you have any suggestions as to who you would like me to interview or topics you would like me to cover, please let me know. On today's episode, I talk with my friend Brandon, whose mom was diagnosed with a disability when he was two years old. We also talk gymnastics, of course. You'll see why later. So, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Brandon. Um, I am one of Christie's friends through the gymnastics fan world. Um, we've been talking to each other for years. Um, and we met at an NCAA championship here in Georgia, where I live now. Um, I grew up in South Dakota. Um, my mother was diagnosed with primary progressive MS um, when I was two years old. And she stopped walking when I was 12 years old. Um, and so I kind of grew up, um, you know, you know, living with a disabled mother and caring for her. Um, and that's kind of bonded Christy and I a bit. I'm honored to have you on because I wanted a different perspective of having someone uh, like a parental figure that had a disability and what that was like growing up, because um, that's not something that I've experienced. Right, right. Um, you know, it's, to me, you know, it's my normal, it's all I, all I know, but um, I will say that, you know, it made me probably a stronger child. Um, it definitely, I remember growing up um, when I was really young, um, my parents had separated for a bit, um, and my mom was still walking. Um, and my dad moved out for about a year, um, and my mom was still doing well during that time. Uh, my family was a, we owned a small business. My, my great grandparents started in the forties, um, is a, a steakhouse and bar. And, um, you know, so insurance with, with, you know, a, a lifetime disability that was diagnosed in 1985 was pretty expensive. And so mm -hmm. she, um, during that time, um, you know, just happened to be that the town we live in, it was a small town in South Dakota of about 2,500 people, um, kind of in the middle of, of nothing. Um, but it, it had a, um, developmental center that was, um, a state sponsored, um, ground and that produced a lot of jobs in my town. And so my mom actually left the family business to, to go work for the um, developmental center in the kitchen there um, so that she could take advantage of the state sponsored benefits and then not have to worry as much about the ability to retire when it was going to be that time. Um, she didn't mm -hmm. know at the time when that was going to come. Um, so just having to worry about that kind of stuff as a kid was not something that a lot of my friends experienced. Um, I will say that I did have some really great friends that came over to my house a lot, knowing that 
like I would have to be home quite a bit to help help my mom. Um, she stopped walking when I was 12. Um, and my parents were back together at this time. And um, that was really hard on all of us, you know, of course, um, because it my mom just kind of started to know any day this was going to be her last day of taking a step on her own. And so my dad had a really, really tough time with that. Um, and he ended up deciding um, to file for divorce. And so um, from when I was about 13 or 13 and a half um, until I left, um, until I graduated from high school, I was home alone with my mom um, and her sole caregiver, really. Um, my brother was four years older than me. And so he was getting ready to, you know, be done with high school. Um, you know, when my mom stopped walking, he was like, a, uh, I think right before his junior year. And so um, he had moved out. Um, he had a child and, a, you know, a, a longtime girlfriend at the time. Um, and so he moved out. So it really was just my mom and I. And then there were a few times when my mom would go to Minneapolis, which is about five hours away from my hometown, um, for treatment. Um, and so she would get, you know, I think she was there for three weeks at a time and she would get 21 um, Baclofen injections. Um, and then she would come back home. But during that time, I was home alone. And so as a teenager at, in a small town in South Dakota, that wasn't a big deal in that regard, but it was just something, you know, that I wasn't expecting probably to have to do. Um, my gram, my grandma on my, my dad's side, um, my grandparents were a huge help my entire life. Um, and I really feel like if my mom had been healthy and, um, you know, and able to, to, to care for herself more, I think that, probably I wouldn't have been as close with my grandparents. And so, um, you know, in that regard, I got lucky that I had them there. Um, my mom was from Virginia. And so she was kind of alone in South Dakota for, in regards to her family. Um, but even after my parents divorced, my dad's parents uh, made sure that my mom was taken care of and, and had everything she needed and that I had everything I needed. Um, so I got lucky in that regard. Um, you know, it, it's crazy to think of just some of the things I, I'm stronger in, I think as a, as a human now, um, you know, I tend to not get grossed out by anything or, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as a teenage kid, I was, you know, helping my mom take a bath and, and stuff like that. So it's okay. just, you know, I'm open to helping anyone do anything or talk about anything, you know. I've seen someone, you know, go from being healthy all the way to, um, you know, unfortunately she passed away a few years ago. Um, but you know, that's my normal. And so if there's, you know, anything that other people start to struggle with as their parents start to age or anything like that, um, I think it, they find it easy to talk to me about those kinds of things just because I've, you know, I've been through watching that happen. Understandably so. Um, I hope you don't mind me asking because I really don't know much about MS. Um, I'm assuming there's different types. Yeah, yeah, there are, um, I think, six different types. Um, 
the most common, or I think the one that a lot of people um, hear about or know somebody who ha has it is um, relapsing, or relapsing remitting or relapsing mm -hmm. progressing, where um, relapsing remitting is you, you kind of, as far as I understand it, you know, I'm not trying to say this is 100% true, but how I understand it is, um, you know, that is common and, and you, if you're struggling, say, to walk one day, you're very stiff and you're, you, you feel anxious and your nerves are, you know, just on their end, um, you know, that might happen for a few days and get worse, but then you'll wake up and start to get a little better for a few days. And so it kind of goes in waves. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's a version where I think you get better, but then once that once it relapses, it's actually a bit worse than the last relapse. So it gradually gets worse over time. Um, my mom had primary progressive. And so she never had a relapse period or a remitting period. She was just progressively worse from day one. Um, and so what that looks like um, is at first, um, the way that she was diagnosed is she had been feeling a bit she wasn't so sure-footed anymore and her her vision was going a bit blurry and after a bunch of testing and i think she couldn't even see really well out of her out of one of her eyes at least for a few days um they determined it was ms and i remember um i didn't you know there were no symptoms that i was aware of as a, a small child at the time um, i would say when i turned about seven or eight um so then she would have been in her fourth or fifth year probably of having it or being diagnosed anyway um, she started needing a lot more um, exercises at home like stretch bands you know to stay mobile um, she had to start taking muscle relaxers um, I noticed that she would start to get irritated at loud noises um, so my brother and I like you know arguing or playing around or fighting would just like make her react you know just slightly more aggressive toward us like you know not she was she would always just you know remind us to be quiet and then after a while it just started to like her her fuse seemed shorter you know we could we noticed it um and then she started having some treatments that um i I don't remember how to explain it, but it's it's almost like an ultrasound type thing where you put um, like gel on on her legs and then it had like um, like a heat type massage thing that would, you know, try to keep her um, nerves from, I get or keep her, her muscles stretched, I guess. Um, but the, you know, the primary damage is in the nervous system. And so um, I started in fifth grade, I started playing saxophone and after a while I I pretty much couldn't practice at home um, just because the noise, you know, was in unbearable. Um, and then, you know, she started needing a cane to walk um, when I was probably about nine or 10. Um, and then I remember in my 10th and 11th year birthday photos, um, she was, I, I can see that she was leaning on me for support um, to stand up to take the picture with me. And then um, on my 12th birthday, it's I'm standing next to her in her chair and she has her three wheeled scooter. So I know that that was when mm -hmm. she was no longer walking. And it, it was in that beginning of that summer. 
Um, one of my dad's good friends um, was hired to as a contractor to build um, a wheelchair ramp so that she could drive that out into the yard um, and then get back in the house. And then later on, he remodeled our bathroom so that that was handicap accessible. And I was able to get a shower chair in. We no longer had a bathtub, but it was a large, mm -hmm. you know, drive-in shower. And so um, I was able to, you know, help her keep bathing all the time instead of, you know, having to do like sponge bath here and there because it was just so hard with the, the smaller bathroom and the bathtub. So um, I think that was really one of the great things about growing up in a small town is that you know, knowing everybody, they kind of stick together and support each other. So, um, I have a lot of really good memories of, of childhood and you know what I mean? So to mm -hmm. me, it's, this was my normal, um, you know, it was really hard to, to watch, you know, at the time. Um, but I think it, it helps me to this day, get through anything that's, you know, tough, you know, I can, just think about, you know, how much, how, how much I, you know, helped and, um, and was able to get through that as a, as a kid mentally, you know, watching my mom take her last steps and things like that. So. And at some point she had to back up a pump. Is that correct? Yes, she did. Um, I would say when I was probably like 15 or 16, it was when I still lived at home. Um, because it was causing problems. And, and so it would, you know, my mom was, a she had a very small frame and just being immobile and being in bed, I think like some of the skin around where the pump was installed would get too tight. So the, the body would start to reject it almost. Um, and so she had to have like, um, she had to go to the hospital a couple of times because the pump was trying to force itself out or was becoming infected around the site. But once they got that figured out, it, it was in, you know, amazing for her. Um, Cause I was, you know, filling all of her medications every day and just the amount of, of meds that got to be cut out because of the pump so that she didn't have to take orally. I think just it helped her a lot too, just mentally not having to be reminded so many times per day, you know, of right. what was going on in her body. So yeah, that was a really awesome thing for her. And what year was that? Um, I, it was gotta be like the late nineties. I don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. Like 90, 2002. 99 or 2000. Cause I, I moved out in the spring or in the summer of 2001 and she had had it for a bit at that time so somewhere in there very cool i mean 98 is when i got mine so that makes sense that it was around that time okay cool um i hope this isn't too personal but um huh. what was the what led to the decision to put her in a more um level of care if you will sure um so i had gone i i'd gone back and forth with um, even leaving to go to college, there was, you know, I could have gone to a college, you know, about 40 miles away from my, my home. Um, but she really encouraged me to do what I wanted to do. Um, she had home health 
care and she actually had um our our neighbors down the street um the bruces linda was the mom and she really cared for my mom and would and was hired as one of her home health aides and so she would come over a couple times a day but she also had two daughters sierra and shandy that would come over just to make sure my mom was okay they'd come over if they're riding their bikes in the neighborhood um and so that really made me feel good and knowing that my grandparents were still in town um you know that i and i was only five hours away so i could go home any day if i wanted or any weekend um so that that was good and then um she was doing really well actually with the home health then what happened is she went to the hospital for a routine um like physical or something and they put her um, into a regular wheelchair, but they wheeled her down the ramp facing forward. And at the end of the ramp, she fell forward out of the wheelchair and it broke both of her legs in four places each. Oh, my um, so word. She, had, she had eight fractures and both legs had to be fully casted for about a year. Um, so during that full year, she moved into a nursing home. And she, at that time, was planning to go back home. And I think, you know, for about a month, she did go back home. Um, so this would have been about 2003. Um, and then she had to go back to the nursing home because home health just wasn't enough care anymore. So she moved back into the nursing home um, and was there for about a year, year and a half. Um, and then in late 2004, she decided that she would rather now that she knew she was, you know, best in a nursing home, um, she would rather move to Virginia where her family is. And so she actually flew, um, her sister flew to South Dakota so that she could fly my mom back with her. And they moved her into a nursing home um, in the Norfolk, Virginia area. And that's where she grew up. So she got to be out there um, for the final years of her mom's life. And she had two of her three siblings around her all the time. Um, and so that was really where she wanted to be. And since she knew that she was going to be in a, in a care facility like that, um, because she at that time had no uh, mobility at all except her neck and one hand. Um, so she just would rather have, you know, that's where she wanted to end up. And so that's where she went while she still could. Um, and so that really, I think, set her mind free a bit, you know, that she knew she was was getting worse, but um, she knew that she was in the best hands and had the best support around her with her family there, um, even though I was still in the Midwest at the time. Another thing that bonds us, I don't know if you knew this or not, my mom was born in Norfolk also. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. So what was the process like for her in terms of like, I don't want to say acceptance because I hate that word, but like um, knowing, you know, what her diagnosis meant. Yeah, um, I remember, um, you know, there were distinct phases like with each kind of level of progression. Um, so I, I remember, you know, when she started needing a cane to walk, um, it was a lot of nights of playing really loud music in our house. Um, we would watch Dirty Dancing, so that was one of our favorite movies. 
Um, you know, she would try to dance a little bit if she still could, things like that. Um, and then the music would get sadder, you know what I mean? And so, mm-hmm. um, the nights would turn into lots of crying and, and, you know, just asking why. Um, and then there would be just a, a, almost a calming period where it would just sink in and she would accept it. And then, you know, she would carry on and she would, you know, be as strong as she needed to be to get through that next phase until, you know, the next really big milestone, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, happened, you know, so like when she had to stop walking, then that was, you know, um, that was a lot harder. And I think that was when um, she probably, I would say, you know, turned to God a lot more. You know, I didn't grow up super religious, but I knew that she had. Mm-hmm. And I think that just kind of um, like brought that back in her because we started going to church and stuff around that time. Um, and if she couldn't make it to church, you know, we would, I would bring her home the program and, you know, talk about it. And I was in the bell choir and stuff. So um, I would still go. Um, but I remember, yeah, just each, each, every few years, there would just be a period of time where it was really hard um, mentally and, you know, nothing would seem to, to take the pain away. Um, one of the things that really helped was she actually had never known her real father um, un- since the age of three. And she had always wondered what happened to him. And when she started having to spend so much time laying around in bed, she would end up watching tons of infomercials. And mm-hmm. she was watching the infomercial for 1-800-US-SEARCH, where you could find mm-hmm. a lost person. And she actually found her father through that service and reconnected with him. Um, he lived in South Carolina. Um, so that really gave her something to do for like several years is just getting to know him and um, they would send each other things and he would send he had like a pocket knife collection and he would send you know a few of them at a time to us that he thought were cool and coins and things like that that you know grandpa's like Um, (laughs) and so that was really cool that really helped her a lot during um, you know where the transition where I was moving out of the house and so that she had him to, to connect with and stuff. So um, that's incredible. Did, yeah. Do you have a relationship with him now? Um, no, not anymore. I think he passed away. I think about a decade ago, I'm going to say, well, sorry um, to hear that. but we did have, like, I do have some letters from him and, and some coins and some pocket knives still, and even like an old Looney Tunes watch and just little things that he collected. So I keep that like in a, um, not a safe, but a little like envelope type thing in a, in a file cabinet. Um, and I kind of pull that stuff out every once in a while just to kind of go through it and kind of nice to have. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. As a little kid, were you kind of sheltered from your mom's diagnosis until you were older or? Mm, I'm going to say no. I, my brother might've been, even though he was older. Um, I was always like mommy's boy and Mm -hmm. I would go, I would beg to go with her to every single doctor's appointment and everything that 
she needed to do. And my parents were really honest about, you know, you know, pretty soon mom's going to need a cane to walk and things like that. Um, and you know, I would get like books, like as much as, as many books as I could get about it that were not necessarily geared toward kids, but at least had something I could comprehend, you know, based Mm -hmm. on however old I was. So I was always trying to find something. I didn't really have the internet until 1997, I think. Um, and so, you know, I would, try to find, you know, go to the library and see if there were any, like, new entries, even in encyclopedias about MS and things that I could find. Um, and so even if they weren't telling me everything, I was just the curious kid that wanted to know more about it. Um, so I would try to try to find as much as I could. If you can give one piece of advice or... Um, I don't know, just encouragement to someone that's in a similar situation with a parent what would that be um I would say like write down and share your memories of um you know the times you're having right now even if if they're good or they're bad um you know things are going to change and if they do um it's just nice to look back on those periods so like I know that I don't have a lot of photos of the time between when my mom stopped walking and when I moved out of the house. And so I can't really, there's nothing that I see that really triggers a lot of memories with her in those years. But even seeing one photo of her, you know, in a different situation or, you know, I can, it triggers memories of, of those years with her. And so I just wish I had a little bit more of like a documentation of, of my childhood with her. Um, but I will say, you know, there will be times where, where it's frustrating for you to to watch it happen. And, and one of the ways that I would, you know, kind of act out in a way is I would I was never a patient kid and that my mom needed me to be patient, you know. And so there were times when I would get frustrated trying to be patient and I would maybe respond and make her feel bad and I shouldn't have, you know? And so just try to try to be compassionate in those times because while it's frustrating for you, the, the kid, or, you know, the healthy or able-bodied or, you know, the, like, just imagine how bad, like, I can only imagine now how, how bad my mom felt, mm-hmm. you know, that, and the way that I was reacting was maybe not the best. And so that definitely only made it worse. And so if I could just redo those little moments, I would just try to make sure I, you know, remember that, like, I need to to help and I need to, you know, I need to be the strong one while she's, you know, realizing that she is needing more help. That's That's great advice because... Sometimes you forget about the person that you're caring for. Like, yeah. I don't mean forget, but, like, you forget that they have feelings, too. Right, right, right. And and one, like, I know some, you know, with MS, there are some patients where the uh, mental capacity does go a bit or, you know, the the brain just kind of gets hit a little bit harder, faster. I got lucky with my mom in that regard that she was... Um, you know, mentally clear and stable 
all the way through the end almost. Um, you know, just the very last few months were rough, but I always knew that if she were being mistreated by anyone that was caring for her, she would be able to know, you know, she'd be able yeah. to to recognize it. Um, and I'm lucky that she had that because I don't know if I would have trusted others, you know, because of knowing how much that I loved her and, and cared for her. And I could still get so frustrated that I would react, you know, in a way that I'd feel guilty about later. Like if somebody doesn't have that deep of a connection with her, you know, I'd, how angry could someone get or frustrated could someone get when she's, you know, just relying on them for help, you know? And so, right. Um, that's, that's, it, it is really hard to think about who's caring for them, but, um, I really am glad that she was there mentally to be aware, you know? Absolutely. In terms of like communication, was she able to communicate, um, for the majority or what was that like? Yeah. Um, where it started to get hard was, um, she lost use of her right hand pretty early on, actually, like when she was still at home, um, she had very limited use of her right hand, um, but she still had pretty full use of her left hand. So um, she could still hold her own medication if I gave her the cups. Um, once she lost use of the left hand, um, it actually went faster. So she lost complete use of that hand and so her only use was then what little left she had in the right hand, which had been weak for years. So at that point, um, the only way I could really talk to her was if there was a nurse in her room to give her the phone. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we got her a cell phone, um, but still she you know, needed someone to be in the room for her. But um, that made it easier because as she got worse, there were more frequent trips to the hospital. Um, you know, she, her blood would go septic quite often just from not being moved around enough. Um, and you know, just all the different medications and diagnoses she had at the time. Um, she would then, you know, I could speak to her in the hospital too with, with the cell phone. Um, cause then when she would go back to the nursing home, it might not be the same room. Um, so it, it just made more sense to switch to that. Right. Um, but that, you know, that was nice um there were there was a small period of time where she could use like voice control like tell the phone um you know to at least hang up um so she wouldn't need someone in the room at the end of a call um so i could talk to her for longer periods of time then um you know i would write letters a little bit um but my aunt would take her um, computer to the nursing home and scroll through facebook for my mom and show her all my well, at the time, it was MySpace, MySpace stuff. And then oh, yes. when we moved over to Facebook, she would show her that stuff, too. Um, but that was really nice because then, you know, she felt like she was still connected. And then we talked on the phone when I talk about my dogs or something, she would know who I'm talking about and stuff. So um, it definitely helped having that kind of technology starting to come about. Absolutely. And speaking of your dog. Mm -hmm. um. You are still somewhat dealing with um, disabilities. Do you want to kind of <laughs> yeah. explain that story? Um, I, a couple of years ago, I lived in Phoenix and um, 
there's a, a fungal infection in Phoenix that is, you know, humans and dogs get it there. Um, it's called valley fever. And when dogs get it, um, which usually happens if, if a dog is homeless, for example, and he's trying to dig a little bit to get to a cooler ground, um, he might dig up some of the spores. And so they get valley fever. And what it is, is in humans, it's a, like a lung infection and a fever. In dogs, it's kind of the same, but it's not really easy to tell it apart from just regular kennel cough that a lot of like shelter dogs get. Um, so these, you know, homeless dogs would get found, they'd go to the shelter and then they'd get sicker um, and they would test them and they'd find out they have valley fever. Um, what it does in a dog is it actually paralyzes their limbs a bit um, or it can. And there was a dog that I had seen on the Facebook page for the shelter that was living in the volunteer's office. Um, his legs were very sore and he had just been diagnosed with valley fever. And I couldn't resist his little face. So I had to go pick him up. Um, and within a week of being home with me and he was on meds at the time, he stopped walking. And so I didn't know what to do right away. I'd never had, you know, I'd never had to help a dog go to the bathroom. You know, I knew what to do mm -hmm. with a human. <laughs> um, but and so after a few weeks, I at first I got a, a like a wagon, you know, an expandable cloth wagon that I could take. Um, so I put him in that and I would take him out in the elevator down. I lived in an apartment and I, you know, take him and I'd put him kind of in this one little grassy patch and he would be able to go potty at least just kind of barely squatting or barely standing. And then once he stopped walking, it, I had a, like a harness for him. So I would actually okay. let him walk on his front legs and I would hold his back half up. Um, that, you know, he, he was starting to get sore. And so while he was on these tons of meds, um, and I knew that hopefully they would start working at some point, um, but he kept, you know, getting worse. And so I got him a little wheelchair, um, that I could put him in, you know, that would hold his back legs up. And the second I got him strapped into that, he took off zooming down the hallway and he's it was like you know just the best thing ever and so um that lasted probably about a year and then we we moved to atlanta um two years ago now just a little over two years and for the first six months to a year here he was still using the wheelchair and then one day he just um he started he was eating his food and he started trying to stand up and he he did it and um he's gotten stronger now he still has valley fever so he's still on medication for it every day um but the way it's measured is through a blood level test and it's a it has a tighter level and so you want to be you know zero but his he was like one to 256 which is really really bad mm -hmm. and now he's one to four and so hopefully soon he'll be one to two or even one to one which would mean, you know, almost untraceable. Um, and he might be able to go off pain medication then because he's still on pain meds too, um, just for his joints. Um, and I can tell there are certain days where he's still a little bit sore. Um, but there are, and there are certain days where he wants to go do too much. And I know that he's going to be too sore the next day. Um, but yeah, he's, he's really coming along and 
it was just kind of crazy, you know, for a couple of years having, you know, dog diapers and, and stuff like that. And I just wasn't, had never done that with an animal, you know, but it was, I guess in the same, in, in a way, I just knew what to do, you know? And so mm-hmm. it kind of made sense that he was mine. <laughs> having seen videos of this little guy mm-hmm. and the progression, it just, makes me smile (laughs) yeah he's so he's like the sweetest dog in the whole world absolutely so I don't think I've ever asked you this but I want to end on a lighter note how did you get involved or uh whatever to the sport of gymnastics oh yeah um so I remember my very first memory is during the 92 olympics um I I must have I I must have known about the sport before that because I remember in 92, my dad um, was flipping through channels and he stopped and I asked him why the, all the mats were red because I thought they were supposed to be blue. Um, Mm -hmm. And he didn't know. I remember that. And so I just never knew, but I never really thought about it again. I actually really loved figure skating to start. And so um, in 92, I was nine and I, I watched, you know, the Winter Olympics, but I remember then that they were going to happen again two years later. So I was really excited, like that it was the first time, you know, that the Winter Olympics were going to be different than the summer. And so then I was 11 and 94 and I watched, I was super into figure skating then still. Um, and then so, of course, when the 96 Olympics came around, I made sure to watch all the sports that I could because I knew I liked Olympic stuff. Um but I still didn't really know what I liked. And so um, I just remember watching the women's team final and it, it was not really Carrie Strug that made me take notice. Cause I remember just like being in awe the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I remember telling my dad, like I remember um, watching this in, you know, 92. And then he said, yeah, well that's Shannon Miller, you know, and, she was probably the one that you were watching in 92 that you remember or something like that, or she could have been one. Um, so then I just started really like liking it. And I, I, when they replayed it on TV, I, I recorded it. Um, but also like my two best friends, um, loved gymnastics too. Like, and they had liked it a little bit before that, but I just had never really talked to them about it. Um, but after you know the olympics and we all talked about it then we all just kind of became like super fans and then um when i got the internet at home in 1997 i found a gymnastics message board and just kind of like felt like those were the people that you know i would go back to the internet for like it was just that was where i had the most fun was like posting online with gymnastics fans and and then I discovered, you know, there was a whole crew of people um, in the gymnastics tape trading club. Mm-hmm. And so we would, you know, set up two VCRs and make copies of the videos that we had and then put them on a list online. And then people could, you know, either pay you for shipping to send a copy or you could trade different meat footage. So then you build up your collection and you just become a bigger nerd. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so um, that was how, yeah, just I remember and that was seventh grade for me, I think right before seventh grade. And then one of our seventh grade art projects was making a 3d version of something out of, you know, like art, art supplies. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and my my friends made um like a gymnastics gym out of cardboard and like that just kind of like was one of my first like gymnastics fan nerdy things I think that kind of solidified it for me and it's I was like obsessed with that thing that they made Oops, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. That's fine. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I can be watching meets on YouTube, and I can hear a couple of our gymnastics friends. And I'm like, oh, that's so and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that is always funny. Um, and it's so funny because a lot of those meets, like if I was at some of those meets, I didn't always watch them on TV. So now when I'm bored at night, you know, and I go just watch random meets on YouTube like you do, or like we all do, I should say, <laughs> all of us who are nerds, um, like I, though, sometimes it's the first time I've seen that coverage because I was, when I was there, I didn't really want to rewatch it right away. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's always a lot more fun to watch something again years later. And so um, that's kind of fun, but also it, you know, triggers just certain specific memories of going to different meets with different groups and different you know, fans that, um, you know, you meet up with, you know, throughout the years, and then you might not see each other for years at a time. Mm -hmm. It's always kind of a unique little fandom. For sure. Do you have any questions for me or anything else you'd like to add? Um, I don't think so. I'm not really good at, at thinking of topics i'm just good at responding (laughs) um no um i don't know this was like fun yeah i really appreciate you being on it's been very um interesting there's a lot i didn't know yeah cool i appreciate you being so open i know this is um not always an easy topic to discuss but i appreciate yeah no thanks it it um part of my problem is like i just I think I sometimes I just need to be told when to stop because I'll just keep talking about it. And part of that is just keeping the memories alive. You know what I mean? I feel like oh, absolutely. the more I can say them out loud, the, the longer I'll remember them. So I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And do you know, or could you send me a link to like a, um, like one of the, a well-known MS site or one of your favorites for like fundraising or just something so people can get more information or if they feel led to donate or anything. Yeah, for sure. I'll send you a couple links. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Yep. Talk to you later. All right. Have a great night. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. I look forward to talking with you soon.